Welcome to the People Impact Podcast, because your impact on people matters. We are two visionary coaches exploring ideas about improving the way people lead and work together, bringing you topics that truly have an impact on the people in your organization today. This is for you if you're interested in expanding your perspectives on people and yourself as a human being. For all of you out there who are open to new views, visions, and dreams. Featuring Marjolaine Fluch. Hello, hi Lisa. Hello, myself, Lisa Dempsey. And today we have a very special guest with us, Maria Murican. Thank you very much for joining us, Maria. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Hi, Maria. Hello, Marlene. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you do, Maria? Sure. So I am based in the United States in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. I've been here for about uh, 20 years now, which is um, constantly fascinating to me because I never thought that I would land in one place for more than a couple of years, let alone two decades. I, um, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, uh, and uh, grew up in a uh, predominantly, <clears throat> predominantly white, uh, Catholic, middle-class neighborhood um, where most people looked and spoke like I did uh, and had, um, because of that, a lot of opportunities that were laid out to me. Um, I also was the daughter of public school teachers. So there were a plethora of books all around my house and two people who took an extremely active interest in my education, sometimes more than I wanted them to. Um, (laughs) And at the same time, my upbringing was unique in many ways in comparison to my, my classmates. So I say all of that because I'm very aware of the multitude of societal advantages that were afforded to me through none of my own actions, but simply because of where and how and whom I was born and what I look like. And at the same time, I also had a unique upbringing and cultural identity because my uh, my family was multicultural, uh, bilingual. My father's family were Armenian refugees who actually fled Istanbul, Turkey during the genocide. And at the time, the United States had closed its borders to any non-Western European immigrants, which meant that my family was not able to enter. And so they went to Cuba, which opened its uh, opened its borders to them and actually had a pretty thriving Armenian uh, diaspora for a number of years. And so my father was born and raised in Cuba. So he had this very interesting sort of bicultural identity of being Armenian uh, and Cuban. He was yeah. Varujan in the home, speaking Armenian with his mother and sisters. And he was Florentino in the streets of Havana and mm. school speaking Spanish. And then when he was a young man, they came to the United States and settled in Detroit and had to start all over again and, uh, you know, learn a new language and new culture and uh, be strangers in a strange land. And so uh, I think that 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 experience and the stories that were passed down to me have always been core to who I am and how I see the world. Um, And I think both of my parents uh, instilled in me from a very young age, the importance of 
bringing deep curiosity, especially uh, when it comes to looking at other humans and recognizing that there's always more to the story, that we're multifaceted and that we have so much more to learn from each other. And I think also because of my parents' uh, backgrounds and the work that they did in inner city Detroit, um, the, the focus on uh, equity and justice and being a voice and using my, my power and my societal privilege to support uh, the, the betterment of those who have often been silenced was something that was really um, a core value of mine from a very early stage in my life. And so that has uh, had a significant impact on my academic and professional pursuits. It's something I have always brought with me um, into any of my work and I think has really led me to have, uh, you know, to follow this career, this profession of um, building bridges across our differences, of facilitating those meaningful conversations and creating space for people to explore these uh, issues of societal injustice and inequity, but to bring compassion and heart into those conversations. And also to bring that organizational systems lens so that leaders are not only having the awareness building opportunities, but also looking at what are the things that we can and need to do to ensure that our systems are overriding some of these, uh, these conditions that have been perpetuated for generations sometimes that lead to that inequality. So um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit about me. I also have, uh, I'm married. I have two young daughters and two cats and all of those uh, lives in my home are uh, frenetic and, <laughs> and exciting and funny. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it's, it's a, a joyous and challenging work, I would say, as you both are very well aware, um, doing this, you know, doing this type of work and immersing ourselves in, uh, you know, facilitating coaching, uh, working with folks through some of these very fraught concepts. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love what you say about, you know, number one, your parents, encouraging, you know, your, your education and encouraging you to be curious. And it looks like that has carried through the, the entirety of your life. And so what is it that you really love doing together with organizations right now? What, what is your most passionate work at the moment? I think my most passionate work is twofold. One is working with, uh, with the individuals who are, whether it's their formal or informal role, really um, trying to lead that systemic change for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so sometimes that is, uh, you know, people with the title of chief diversity officer, sometimes it's uh, DEI councils or committees or affinity groups. Um, sometimes it is uh, sort of just those informal ambassadors, the people who have volunteered themselves because they care about this and they want to make it a part of their day-to-day uh, and, and do more than just kind of go to the proverbial mandatory training or celebration events, but really to, to try to look at ways to take this to the next level. So um, I'm passionate about working with those individuals who, wherever they are on their own individual journey in terms of understanding and having the skills um, 
to, to facilitate and foster diversity, equity, and inclusion, they're bringing that heart, they're bringing that desire to continue to learn and grow. Um, and the other thing I'm really passionate about right now, I think, is um, looking for uh, opportunities to truly embed these concepts of equity and justice and inclusion into the organizational fabric, into the way things are. Um, because I think that's long-term, you know, it's, it's we, we know from the research, it's not the one-off trainings that are going to lead to success. It's not even, uh, you know, having really solid recruitment practices to try to increase representation. It is the holistic change effort when we make this a part of our unconscious um, way of being that we start to really see that change um, be sustained over time. What in your perspective makes a big difference? Um, leadership, <laughs> the mm -hmm. people in positions of power and authority. And I use that term leadership loosely. Absolutely, it has to be the people in the C-suite right, the folks at those senior executive levels, uh, not only um, being committed, but visibly sharing that commitment and engaging in actions that back up what they say they care about, that reinforce the stated values. Um, and that often means uh, a lot of internal reflection and um, uh, willingness to change behaviors uh, in order to model that new, that new framework, that new culture. Um, but it's also leaders at more informal levels. I think a lot of times it's people in those supervisory or middle management positions that can have the most profound impact on the culture of the organization because they have the day-to-day -day interactions much more frequently with um, individual contributors. And oftentimes those are the folks that, are, that have the, the least amount of power and are often experiencing the most pain or harm when it comes to inequity. So um, making it easier or as easy as possible for people to want to commit to this, I think is really important. And in terms of change, you know, I, early on when you and I got into touch, one of the things that we dove into is this idea of immunity to change. Because I think many organizations, many people out there, there's an increased awareness. It's not ubiquitous, but it it is on the rise that yes, you know, this DEI space is incredibly important. It's incredibly valuable. They need to embrace it. But how to unlock that change? And and there's this idea of immunity to change that that you and I talked about. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what immunity to change means? Sure. So the immunity to change framework uh, is actually the work of uh, uh, Lisa Kagan and Robert Leahy, who are based in um, at Harvard University, and it uh, it explores the idea that first and foremost, diversity, equity, inclusion are th this is not um, a technical problem to be solved, right? It's it is a complex adaptive challenge, which means that there's no one right answer. And it cannot be a, a decision that is sort of brought down from on high and say, do this and it will be fixed. Um, and because this is a complex challenge, because it's an adaptive challenge, um, a lot of times adaptive challenges are hard to identify and thus easy to deny. 
And so what Keegan and Leahy talk about in their work around immunity to change is that um, even when we consciously have stated commitments, stated goals for what we want to achieve, and we might all agree on them to a very large extent, we may be engaging in actions that are adversely affecting our ability to achieve those stated goals. Okay. Or you we say may... you're going to do it, but you're still not doing it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, or we're not doing the things that we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, they wanted to sort of pull back the curtain and ask, what is it that is causing us to engage in these actions or inactions that are mm-hmm. impeding progress toward what we say we want? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those hidden competing commitments, I think, are really important for us to try to unearth with our leaders and our organizations, because that's often where we see that there are elements of the organizational structure and culture that are being reinforced and perpetuated, oftentimes because they are, not only because they're easier, they're known, but also because they tend to serve a certain segment of the population. Mm -hmm. Um, And so all of us, whether we're benefiting or not benefiting from those um, those cultural norms are contributing and perpetuating them without realizing it sometimes. And competing um, and with so other it, commitments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's not, what I really like about this framework is that it's not a, it's not a gotcha. It's not meant to make us feel badly or to say these hidden competing commitments or what we're doing or not doing is because we're bad or we're uh, disingenuous with our stated commitments. It's recognizing what's happening at that implicit level. And it also recognizes how complex and interrelated these systemic challenges are. Uh, And it gives us an opportunity to take a more, I think, observer observer viewpoint versus looking at it from the subjective good bad lens to look at what are some of the big assumptions, the underlying assumptions that are contributing to these hidden competing commitments. And oftentimes those commitments, you know, we think about this notion of immunity. All of us want to have immunity to (laughs) certain viruses. Um, And so, you know, we build immunity because it protects us. It protects us from things that are negative and potentially um, harmful to us. And so the same is related to the immunity to change model that we build these immunities because in some way, shape or form, they might serve us. They protect us. Um, and as you know, as we know, change is even when we welcome it leads to some sort of loss, right? And so um, what I like about the immunity to change process and what I've seen with some of my clients as we're as we're using this uh, process is that it gives us an opportunity to have more frank conversations about at the individual and also at the organizational level, what are some of the elements of the existing culture and structure that it's not that they're quote unquote bad, right? We're not, we're not putting a positive or a negative, um, you know, sign on any of them, but we're exploring them through that diversity, equity, and inclusion lens and saying, who do these support? Who do they empower? How might they, without us realizing it, actually impede our progress? Um, so I'll give you a quick example of what this looks like in action. We did an immunity to change exercise with one client. And this is a client that we've been working with for three years. Uh, they've made significant progress. They started with 
no DEI foundation. Um, so we did a lot of the elementary, you know, introductory DEI trainings. We helped them establish a DEI council. We did a lot of work in the first year with their leadership team to sort of broaden their perspectives and understanding, give them the language and the tools to be able to, uh, you know, really model these efforts. We did an assessment, organizational assessment. We did another assessment a year and a half later and were able to track where progress had been made. And so things, things were rolling. And yet at the same time, that second assessment indicated, yes, we've made progress in a lot of these areas where people had concerns, but there are still some, there's some concerns that, may, that, were, are, that we're seeing are still continuing. And so what's that about, right? Um, and I think we hit a snag or a plateau in many ways with many organizations. And this one I think was a great example where leadership said, well, so what's the problem though? We've made progress. Aren't we doing enough already? Aren't we doing okay? What more? Are we done? Are we done now? <laughs> Are we there yet? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's reminding them this is a journey. It's not, it's not about the end result. It's something that we constantly have to be working toward, but that more amorphous language makes it very challenging for organizational leaders to say, Okay, so these are the steps we take next, right? They want tangible, they want practical. Um, and so the immunity to change process gave us an opportunity to say, so what might be contributing to some of these um, existing elements of the culture that good, bad or ugly, it's not about that, may be impeding our progress toward DEI. Um, and you know that is typical um, in many organizations with whom I work that it's seen as a destination rather than a journey. And so where, where we incorporated the immunity to change framework is that we said, well, let's look at some of the existing cultural elements. If you ask the, if you ask the organization, if you ask the workforce, how do they describe the culture? Uh, again, good, bad, or ugly. It's just what is. And um, what behaviors are rewarded? What behaviors are not rewarded? What, what um, behaviors may uh, instill some consequences, uh, who has power when it, and input into decision-making, so on and so forth. And what came out of that, one of the interesting threads was that although the organization uh, and the leadership state their commitment to DEI as a strategic priority, the message that is implicitly being interpreted by the workforce is that our day-to-day -day work trumps any DEI effort. So DEI is still seen as this nice to have over here other thing that is mostly made up of events that if I have time to go to this lunch and learn, that's, that's me checking the box on doing DEI rather than seeing it as just a core part of who we are and what we do, a lens through which we make our decisions, um, how we ensure that all voices are heard in meetings, so on and so forth. And so that was a really interesting deceptively simple aha moment for a lot of yeah. the leaders to realize we're saying this and yet what we are um, actually communicating to our managers and thus to their teams is that DEI is this other thing and first do your work 
and then maybe you can have your dessert, your DEI yeah, yeah, dessert. Right? Time left, then you know, <laughs> any space left in your stomach, yeah. have some DEI. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's so great. The, tastes good. Right. But if you're full, you're full. <laughs> if yeah. you're full, you'll you're full. Rather than seeing it as the broccoli, they were seeing it as yeah. the you know the ice cream. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so one of the things that we're doing with this particular organization now is uh, having deep dive conversations within each team and asking them, you know, giving them a, a framework for looking at their processes, saying, how do we bring a DEI lens to our processes? Mm -hmm. And that has been really helpful for them because like, this is practical, this is tangible, and this makes it something that is a core part of just how we do things yeah. rather than this seemingly insurmountable challenge of addressing social injustices as an organization. Um, so I think that's where the immunity to change can be so powerful is that it, it opens us up to recognizing that sometimes the power is in the small, subtle changes that we can make in our day-to-day -day that over time contribute to that culture change. How did you feel at that point with them? I, um, it was, it was a great turning around moment for me too, but I will say it was, you know, it was a struggle for all of us because even in the midst of the immunity to change conversation and exploring this, this sort of aha moment, there were still, uh, leaders who were holding on to this idea that yes, but aren't we doing enough? <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, um, it was exciting to see some pe many people get it. And also, you know, just a, a reminder that everyone, every individual is going at their own pace in terms of discovery and action. And uh, what sometimes seems so uh, common sense to me, <laughs> because mm -hmm. I spend all my time doing this work, um, yeah, is not too. necessarily <laughs> common sense to others. And so I think, you know, as much as I... Um, try to uh, facilitate in others to be compassionate and open and patient with the process and extend grace. I sometimes find myself losing my patience and my curiosity with folks. Um, and so it's something as a coach, I have to constantly remind myself of, you know, like practice, always be practicing this notion of deep listening and um, giving people the space they need to come to these decisions on their own so that they can commit to those actions. Yeah. Yeah, and for our listeners, as, as you were talking about, you know, as as coaches, sometimes you have to remind yourself to to be curious. Both Marieline and I were sitting here nodding. Yes, yeah. yes we're, we're <laughs> human too. <laughs> yeah. Something may happen after this conversation, and then suddenly Benny drops. We don't know when it's going to happen. Just <laughs> believe it will. We yes. trust in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So just to, you know, I love this example that you give of, of this organization that was heavily invested in this, was trying really hard, but really struggling to bring some things to life. And then there was this, you know, it really kind of um, aha moment of, oh, yeah, we are still communicating that day-to-day -day work trumps any DEI, you know, that that, that was the the nice little dessert if you have room, but it's not going to be a main part of the course. What is that balance? Because I can imagine every organization will struggle with that. You know, the day-to-day -day work, that's how they perceive that they make money. And that is how they perceive that they make success. So how do you help open up that space of, oh, but 
you know, DEI inclusion needs to be a part of this. If you want your day-to-day work to be successful, this needs to be included. Yeah. I, first and foremost, I think it starts with ensuring that diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, is not only showing up as its own separate line item on the strategic plan, but Mm -hmm. that it's integrated into all of the actions within the overall corporate strategic plan. Uh, Broccoli is in the casserole. It's not a side dish. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. The broccoli is not on the side. It's baked in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. That's a great, (laughs) great metaphor. Um, And similarly with, uh, you know, learning and development, I think, Absolutely, we always need to have a separate, um, concentrated time and learning that focuses on DEI specifically. And it also needs to be embedded into the entire sort of learning and professional development curriculum. Uh, so that again, those messages and the skills are reinforced on a regular basis, whether we're talking about technical skills or management skills or communication skills, so on and so forth. So I think those are two things that are really integral to making this just more easily a part of the day-to-day. And I've seen this with some organizations where in a slightly different realm, uh, you know, I remember working with a federal government agency a number of years ago, and we were reconstructing the leadership development skills training programs. And we introduced this notion of emotional intelligence, which had already been around for probably two decades at least, right? (laughs) You know, Daniel Goldman's work. And um, and the response from the leaders was, we don't talk about feelings here. We don't talk about our emotions. You can't (laughs) can't do this. And, And they were right that, you know, we tried to introduce this and there was a great deal of resistance but we kept going, we kept integrating the language and showing how it was important and relevant. Fast forward, it took 10 years, but <laughs> doing the training a decade later, when we would say, do you, um, how do you describe or what do you know about emotional intelligence? Every hand went up and people mm. were able to accurately define what it was and why it was important. So I think some of this also is recognizing that this takes time to become a part of our lexicon, um, but it can happen if we, if we persevere. And it will because we are. Yeah, so it sounds like it's that idea of, you know, planting the seeds, mm-hmm. at least sparking the conversations, giving some of the ideas, giving some of the those really core fundamental pieces. And and it may not be, it may not get baked into the casserole right away, right? There mm-hmm. still might be some picky eaters who go, no, no, I want that on the side. Don't, don't put it in. <laughs> but it, it will eventually make its way into the mix. Yeah. Yeah. What's one thing, I mean, this is a complicated process and Mm -hmm. and change often is. I mean, what we know for most change models is seven years is is usually the earliest that you can start measuring uh, substantial change. And oftentimes it runs into 10 plus years for, Mm -hmm. for other more complex dynamic pieces. So what's something people can start doing today to plant those seeds to start introducing some of those foundational pieces into their organization? So there are, I think it's looking at this from 
a vantage point of what are the nudges that we can start to introduce um, that don't feel overwhelming, uh, but challenge people to reframe their assumptions about what is normal, what is the, you know, the, the, the right way or the standard way. Um, so I think instead of telling people you, we all are biased, instead let's unpack the ways in which our implicit associations and biases may impact decisions and how we can mitigate that by introducing some, some pause points to ask ourselves, what are we missing here? Where might we have some collective blind spots? Um, whose voice are we missing in this decision-making process and how are we going to address that? Um, flipping the, the, the questions that we ask, even when it comes to, um, for example, re you know, recruitment and candidate selection, instead of starting with who's the ideal candidate or who's the most qualified candidate and why, shifting it to, everybody is qualified. So why not each of these individuals? Um, and it's small nudges like that, as well as looking at our processes and, and asking, um, you know, if we were to bring an equity lens to this process, to this decision-making process, um, what would that look like? What would be possible? What are the criteria that we all agree upon we should be prioritizing? when it comes to this decision. Um, and giving opportunities for people to anonymously uh, respond to some of those questions in writing is really important. I think especially if you have organizational cultures where there is less of a sense of safety or trust. Um, but these are small, subtle, but not insignificant nudges that managers, supervisors, individual contributors can be doing in their teams when it comes to day-to-day -day decision making that I think can be happening easily without any additional resources beyond just thinking a little bit differently and maybe taking a little bit more time to slow down in order to be able to speed up later. Um, and then at the at the higher level, I think at the at the executive level, it is doubling down on the commitment. Uh, right now to diversity, equity, and inclusion and continuing to um, reinforce that language and communicate that now more than ever, it's important for us to ensure that we're building cultures that embrace everybody's needs. This is not a zero sum game. This is a, a reframing way we do things to ensure that we are achieving our mission and our vision. So I think there's that sort of that meta um, piece that needs to happen as well as the, the small sort of micro changes that we can make. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I love that idea of the the little nudges, right? Just those those tiny little, you know, rather than um, focusing on microaggressions, focus on the micro steps. What are the little micro micro pieces that can be done to to improve the situation and to to bring this more to the forefront? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Maria, for, for joining us today. We, we appreciate you and, and you sharing your perspectives with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. This was super interesting. Thank you. And thanks everyone out there for listening. Perhaps you've been listening directly online. You can, of course, find the People Impact podcast on your favorite app. 
please do make sure to subscribe so that you're the first to learn about our newest episodes. And if you appreciated this episode with Maria, please share it. We'd also love to hear your feedback, guest suggestions, and topic requests. We want to know what's on your mind in the workplace. Let us know. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.